0: Father, it's good for us to be thankful. It's good for us, Father, to be encouraging. You tell us in, our, in your words so often that we are to give thanks for all things. We are to find joy in all things. And though maybe for some of us, Father, our nature is not to do that. It's to be critical, to look on the negative, to uh, always find the cloud in the silver lining. Father, we pray that in this morning, if nothing else, if, if right now, if at no other time, we would open your word with a joyful expectation. Joy, Father, not just for what we'll learn, not just for the insight that we anticipate the Holy Spirit will bring, but joy, Father, even in the correction that might occur. Joy, Father, even in the opportunity to see our sin revealed by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And by it, Father, choose to do differently next time, to conform our life to your word and to the example in your Son. Let us count that joy as well. Because, Father, in the joy I know I will find greater motivation to serve and to obey. And I believe, Father, that's true for all of us. And I ask that as we open today in Luke again, watching the disciples learning from Jesus, watching Jesus, Father, prepare them for what would come, may this be our preparation as well. May it be that we have something you desire from us, that we would serve in some way, Lord, some opportunity ahead of us. And that even now, as we study the scripture, you're preparing us much as Jesus did the disciples. Let that be the case here this morning, Father. And let us look forward to that opportunity to serve in joy. In the hope, Father, that we might be worthy, even in just some small way, of what you've done for us. That we might return it in kind, if it were even possible. Lord, we thank you for this time, for the gathering before us, and for the word opened in front of us. And for the Holy Spirit working within us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we are in Luke 9, as I mentioned. We will be picking up at about verse 23, which is about where we left off, appropriately enough. When you look at chapter 9 of Luke, you might come to the conclusion that the first half is devoted to the demonstration of Jesus' power as God, His power to heal and to provide. Remember, we began the chapter with Him sending the apostles out and performing miracles. Then we saw Him feeding the 10,000 or 5,000 plus people with the fishes and the loaves. So you get the impression as you begin the chapter that, oh, we're learning here about how Jesus had great power and he had the power of God, he was God, that he had the power to heal and provide. But as you keep reading the chapter, you begin to see the theme shift a little bit and you you begin to sense that maybe the real purpose of this chapter is to discuss Jesus' future ministry and specifically his martyrdom and then ultimately his glorification. So maybe that's the point of the chapter. And all of that would be reasonable. In fact, all of those thoughts are true if you look at the text itself. All of those themes or all of those subjects are in the text. But I personally believe, as I'm studying chapter 9 with you, I personally believe that the theme here, the view of this chapter, the purpose of the chapter, is really more centered on the disciples. The theme of the chapter, though it includes all those details, is really more on the disciples and how Jesus is preparing them, more so than perhaps just in a focus on Jesus himself. In the first half, for example, we had Jesus demonstrating his power as God, yes, but he did it before the disciples, in front of the disciples, to encourage them, to give them strength and to give them trust that they could go out and do much the same thing in God's power, and that God, in fact, intended to work through them in that way, that that was part of God's plan. And I have to imagine that as the disciples went out in ministry after the crucifixion, that they must have looked back on moments like what we're seeing here in chapter 9 and thought to themselves... I really am glad I have that memory of that experience to to draw upon now that I'm facing persecution and trial and I have these thousands of new believers in this early church and I don't have a beginning of an idea of how to feed them or how to take care of them. But I remember what Christ did for us when we went out and healed. I remember how he showed us the feeding of the 5,000. And if he can do it then, he can do it now. Something like that. I have to imagine that was quite an encouragement. So now today as we enter into the second half of chapter 9, Luke is going to continue to highlight this theme of Christ preparing his disciples, but it takes a decidedly negative tone now. By negative, I mean rather than showing the, the upside, if you will, of God's ministry through the, the disciples, Christ is now going to begin to prepare them for the downside. And there is a downside. There is a downside, at least in this life, of what it means to actually walk in Jesus' steps, of actually to walk with him in ministry. You know, this, this is going to be a great opportunity for all of us, I hope, as you study with me here to learn actually from Jesus himself, as if we were a disciple in the moment. Put yourself perhaps in the moment as one of his disciples. Consider for yourself that you may have a, a task ahead of you in ministry that God is preparing you for even now, though you may not be aware of it, much as the disciples themselves weren't aware of what was coming. But yet God is willing to prepare you even now in what he shows you. Let's look at the scripture here with me today. Luke nine twenty-three. And he, meaning Jesus, of course, he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. When he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We'll pause there for just a moment. Let's begin by looking at this famous passage by just breaking it down. It's always healthy as you go into scripture to study by first making observations of the text. Let the text speak to you from what you've just seen. Let's look, for example, beginning in verse 23. Jesus is said to say to all of them. The words he spoke he spoke to all of them all here though by the context must mean the disciples in other words if you look at what he was talking about in the verses immediately prior to verse 23 he's addressing the disciples he's taken them off alone to the side and he's speaking to them we're not talking about jesus addressing the crowd he's talking to a very small group of people to the 12 disciples these are words for those who profess an allegiance to jesus To those who have already said, I am yours, I am following you, I am your disciple. And Jesus says to that person, specifically here to the disciples, I want you to understand that if you intend to follow me, then there are some things going to be demanded of you. It's going to be challenging. His comment in verse 23, and I want you to get this picture in your mind, because when we break the study up week to week like this, it's going to be difficult, perhaps, sometimes, to keep, keep yourself in the moment. Put yourself back in the moment where we were last week. The disciples have just seen Jesus feed this crowd. They have to be tremendously excited over all of this. And Jesus, a few days or hours or some time later, pulls them aside and says, Okay, who do you think I am? Who do they say I am? And who do you think I am? And Peter, as we said, knew enough by the power of the Holy Spirit to confess Christ as Lord. And then, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus uses that moment to say, Don't tell anyone about what you know. And furthermore... I must be rejected. I must be killed. Whoa, that comes out of nowhere to these disciples, right? That's the first they've heard that. And they're not sure they understand why in the world that has to be true. That's a shock. You know, it's hard for us to appreciate that. We've grown up in a faith where from the very first day we heard about it, we heard about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And once we understood what that meant, once we were willing to give our trust over to that, We entered into a faith where the death on the cross is the recurring theme. You have to try to put yourself ahead of that moment at the time of the disciples in this scene and begin to appreciate how much of a stunner it was that the guy they're following, the guy they think is about to usher in the kingdom, says, Oh, but wait, before any of that, I have to die. I have to die a rather pitiful, miserable death, being rejected by all those around me. And immediately after that, Jesus says the words in verse 23. So what do you think he was saying those words for? Put yourself in Jesus' place just for a moment. And by that I simply mean looking at the disciples' faces. What do you think was on their faces when he said, I must die? I mean, there must have been a mixture of disbelief, confusion, maybe distress, maybe fear. Because remember, when they think about his death, they're immediately going to be thinking about their association with him And whatever happens to him, well, that might happen to me. And in that moment, as he stares at their faces, look what he says in verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He puts it right back at them. I imagine there were at least a few disciples in that moment who began to rethink following Jesus. If even just for a second. Right? They're starting to question whether it was really worth it all. And I love the fact that Jesus gives them the straight truth. He tells them that if the thought of Jesus, the thought of their Messiah, the thought of their rabbi dying bothers them, then they ought to know that that same possibility exists for them. They ought to know that, in fact, it is inevitably going to happen to most of them. Most of the disciples were martyred. The only one we suspect lived out his life without martyrdom was John the, uh, the Apostle John And John was simply exiled to Patmos, where he died essentially in prison. So Jesus is telling them the straight truth here. Oh, hey, you don't like the fact that I'm going to die? Well, let me tell you. Same thing happens to you. And if you want to follow me, that's the price. If you're going to follow me, you better be prepared to pick up your cross. Now let's do another moment of observation. What does that mean to them, do you think? What does the phrase mean? How did it strike the apostles, pick up your cross? And follow me. It was interesting to me. I, this is such an ingrained phrase, right? We talk about picking up your cross. In fact, we make light of it so many times. Somebody will start getting a little self-pity going, right? They'll start feeling sorry for themselves. They feel like they're being persecuted, and everybody hates me, and nobody appreciates me, and they start whining about it. And if I do that, my wife turns around and says, well, when you're done on that cross, why don't you come down here and help me do what you need to do? You know? The point being, you're sitting there, I'm the martyr, you know, I'm the one who... And and we make light of it in that way. We know what being on a cross means. We know what holding a cross means. We have all this, this baggage now that goes with the phrase, because of Christ dying on a cross. If Christ had never come, if he had never died on a cross, crucifixions would have existed, but they wouldn't be nearly as ingrained into our social consciousness as they are now because of Jesus on the cross. So you hear the phrase, bear your cross, pick up your cross, And you have all these thoughts and feelings that come with that phrase. But what do you think the disciples felt when they heard it? I mean, this is prior to the crucifixion. This is prior to Jesus getting crucified. They had no idea that's how he was going to die. So what do you think was in their mind when he said, pick up your cross, bear your cross? And I was very interested in how this phrase is taught because it is so common in our lexicon, it's often used in preaching. And I went out on the web and I did a search to find... What other preachers say about this phrase, because it's very easy to find. It's used quite commonly. And I found a lot of examples. I'll just pick one I I found. There's no need to to tell you where or who. That's not the point. But just listen to one person's interpretation of this phrase. Quote, Jesus' call to take up our cross and follow is a vision to keep us on the path. When we shrink away, it's because we don't believe our voices and actions can make a difference. But if we stop pursuing justice, peace, healing, and wholeness for our lives and for our world, we become supporters of that which we oppose. Guy writes better than I do. I'll give him that much. But frankly, this kind of general spiritualization of Jesus' words is is so typical. And And although I can't quarrel with the teaching, I'm not saying that anything they said there is patently wrong. I do have to wonder if that's really what Jesus meant when he said, pick up your cross and carry your cross and follow after me. Do you think that's what he had in mind? Do you think he was talking in these sort of you know, flowery ways of, you know, you're going to have some rough times, but you know, you've got to be willing to just press onward. Don't give up the fight. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like a coach doing a pep talk, right? It, it, it sound, it, is that what he meant? Do you think that's what the disciples thought? Well, consider some details about Jesus' comment. First, we know Jesus just told the disciples that he expected to be put to death. I mean, in the same breath, he just said, I'm going to die, and you have to pick up your cross and follow me. More than that, he said he must suffer and die. It's not just I'm going to fall over and die of a heart attack. I'm going to be persecuted to the point of death. So, given that, and then hearing the phrase, the disciples would naturally, I would think, would have to assume that... What he's talking about here revolves around death. And then secondly, take for a moment the fact that in that culture, a cross was already a very visible symbol. Though it hadn't been associated with Christianity yet, of course, it's not like they didn't know what a cross was. I went out and did some research on crucifixion. Very interesting effort, if you ever want to follow. And crucifixion was not something that was started with Jesus. It was not something that even started with the Romans. It predates the time of Jesus by probably 700 years. The earliest crucifixions we know of in history date all the way back to the Persians and the Greeks. And it had always been an ignominious method of execution. In other words, I don't just want to kill you. I want to humiliate you. I want to dishonor you while I'm killing you. That was the reason crucifixion existed. And the Romans had taken it to a new level. When Spartacus revolted against Roman authority, Not only he died in battle, but all those who aligned themselves with him, over 10,000 men, were crucified on a road between Rome and Jerusalem. 10,000 crosses along this road. The point being obvious to anyone who might come later and think about rebelling against Roman authority. Romans commonly made their prisoners carry the cross beam, the horizontal beam of the cross, to their own execution, where then it was hoisted up on a freestanding vertical beam and nailed or roped together. So there was no doubt in the disciples' mind what Jesus was saying when he said, you have to pick up your cross and carry. They're thinking, you know what you would say today, if you wanted to give a similar perspective today? Today you would say, you need to pick up your noose and follow me. You need to pick up your electric chair and follow me. There's no mistaking what he's saying when he says that. Not in their mind. Not after what he just said about himself. This isn't some generalized, hey, you're going to have some tough times. You better be willing to gut it out if you want to follow me. That may be true, but that's not his point. His point is, you need to be prepared to come to the same end that I'm going to come to. So when he says to his disciples, deny yourself, take up your cross, he's communicating just one thought. He's reaffirming the reality of their own persecution and potentially their own death. Now look at Jesus' next statement. Put it all together. He says, if you're more interested in preserving your earthly life, because remember, he's talking about death. He's talking about the inevitability, in many cases, of dying for their faith. He says, if you're more interested in preserving your earthly life than following me, then what you hope to gain in an earthly sense, you are actually losing in an internal sense. Yeah, you you may preserve your life here a few days longer in your own mind. Keep in mind the day of your death is set by God even before you're born. You don't change that one bit. I guarantee that's true for all of us. The day you die is already appointed according to Scripture. Do what you will, but you haven't changed it one hour. Christ says, who of you by worrying can add one hour to his life? No one. Worrying in the sense of trying to forestall death, trying to overcome it, trying to protect yourself against it. Go ahead, spend the time and effort. It may be valuable for other reasons. It may leave you better fit so that you can serve God. That's certainly a good thing. But it won't change the day you die. Similarly, he says, if you think you're gaining anything by avoiding the persecutions that come from following me, you're only fooling yourself because you're not changing the day you die. And secondly, you're sacrificing an eternal life because by not following him, you're essentially demonstrating your lack of faith in him. Those of true faith do follow. Anyone who would do so is actually showing they are ashamed. Anyone who would reject him, who would not follow him, who would forsake these persecutions for the sake of trying to maintain their earthly life, anyone who does that is demonstrating that they're ashamed of Jesus, he says. And anyone who is ashamed of me in that way, I will be ashamed of them when I come in glory. This is hard stuff. What I like about this more than anything is he's not soft-selling. He's not taking the easy way out. He's not trying to paint a picture that says it's all wine and roses for the Christian, Don't worry about any of the bad stuff. He looks him right back in the eye and says, You don't like what I just said? Well, if you're not willing to do the same thing, then don't follow me. It's a hard message for us. It sounds almost uncaring, unsympathetic. What I like about it is it's honest. And sometimes we trade honesty for politeness. What could we possibly gain, Christ asks, in this life, by remaining alive even one day longer, that would be worth an eternity? It's foolish on its face. The question doesn't even have to be answered. And yet, so often, that's exactly the bargain we consider if we don't exactly take it many times. We still give it thought. It's a foolish bargain. You know, later in the same gospel, in Luke, in chapter 14, which we'll get to one day, if anyone comes to me, Christ says in 1426, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, and yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, he's not saying we should hate those people. That's not his point, obviously. His point is, if they make your faith a dividing point in your relationship with them, if they say it's me or your Christianity, you either love your family and do what we tell you, or you go follow that stupid Christianity Christ says, if you're not willing to hate your own family over your faith, then you're not my disciple. If that means more to you than eternity, though he doesn't wish it, though we should hope not to have to do that. The point is, there is nothing in this life worth the eternity that is offered by our faith in Christ. Nothing. Now, there's a lot more we could say, of course, from what's written in Luke 14, but we're going to wait till we get there. But we can certainly see the connection with our text today, Right? And this sobering statement, the statement that says, I've got to be willing to forsake everything, even my own family, if that's what comes down, if, it, if that's what it comes down to it, is such an honest, brutally honest, and frankly, unheard statement today. I don't know that we ever bring this up in churches very often anymore, because, well, nobody wants to hear it. And certainly there must be some other way, right? Certainly Jesus has some alternative that doesn't demand we have that kind of a sacrifice in our life. And that assumption brings us to all kinds of bad thinking in the end. As I was researching for this lesson, uh, looking at uh, crucifixions, for example, I came across a story about Sudan. Now, Sudan is actually in East Africa, borders Kenya. And it has literally, in the last decade, seen thousands of Christian Sudanese nailed to crude crosses in the Sudanese plain. In fact, the Arab television network, we all know Al Jazeera. Jir- uh, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that their journalistic credibility is all that high with me, but they reported, I would imagine on a topic like this, they probably are somewhat reliable. In 2002, they actually reported, so this is what, four years ago? In 2002, they reported that 32 Christian ministers and other young males, some in their early teens, had been crucified in Sudan. They were whipped severely, then nailed to crosses with six inch nails through their arms and legs. Now, I'm not bringing this up to shock you. I'm not trying to disturb you with this. My point here is to make, I hope, an obvious statement that what Christ told his disciples, his apostles, 2,000 years ago, is no less relevant today. You know, the fact that we don't have crucifixions up and down in 1604 is a blessing. But that doesn't mean God won't call one of us to go to the other side of the world where that threat exists. It doesn't mean you won't see other kinds of persecution. Much more, more for, uh, perhaps like the family issues I talked about a moment ago. It doesn't mean you won't see any number of things come your way because of your faith. And what Jesus is saying is if any of those things are high enough in your list of reasons not to be a Christian, that it would actually change your walk, change your, your desire to be a disciple, then don't bother starting. You notice he's doing this early in his ministry with the disciples. He's saying, hey, if this bothers you, then you can't be my disciple. his followers have to be willing to look at suffering as a part of what God may do to bring us to glory in his Son. Do you notice how Jesus has ratcheted up the seriousness of this thing all of a sudden with the disciples? And of course, I'm trying to bring that tone here a little. Because if they had been thinking up till now about, you know, I walked away from my fishing and I walked away from my tax collecting and now I'm walking with this rabbi and it's you know just a new career move, and, uh, gee, I never thought about being a rabbi before, but this is kind of cool. I mean, we've been able to heal people. We've been able to feed people miraculously. This is kind of looking pretty fun. I, I like this. You know, that fishing stuff got awful boring compared to this. And maybe they were just playing around a little bit with the idea of being a rabbi like Jesus. Maybe they just like the idea of being able to attract large crowds. Maybe this just held something... That was exciting for them. And what Jesus is doing right now, knowing what they're thinking, is he's pulling them aside and he's saying, if that's what you're interested in, then let me just set things straight for you now, and if you don't like it, you can leave and we'll all just save a lot of time. These men were going to see the same things Jesus saw. Many of the apostles were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were stoned. They were driven out of towns. They were despised. They were mocked. They had no life of their own. They forsake family life. They forsake growing up with wives and kids and the whole normal, quote, normal life that they could have led. They threw all of that away because they were going to start the church. They completely sacrificed normal life. And they gave it all up for one reason only, because Jesus walked by their boat one day and said, drop what you're doing and follow me. And if they shrink back from that responsibility, from that call, they're trading a little discomfort in this life for an eternity in hell. how do you even compare the two? So what do we do with this statement? You know, we're not in Sudan, we're certainly not two thousand years ago in Jerusalem. so what do we do with this today? you know on the one hand, I'm, I'm fairly confident that the main point for us here today is is not the point that was made in that sermon I read earlier, that little snippet. I mean I'm not saying it didn't have value to whoever heard it on that day, but I'm saying for us, I don't believe. What you take away from Jesus' words is, you know, buck up and be ready for anything. And I mean, that's fine. That's good. But that's not what I think he's saying. And I also don't think it's true that we're going to face crucifixion. I pray not. I doubt it. I don't think that's on the horizon for most of us. I certainly hope not. But he was talking to 12 men who knew or should have known they were going to experience many of the same persecutions. And he wanted these men to understand to count the cost of being his disciple. He wanted their eyes open. So for us today, maybe that's the message. Maybe not so much to predict what's going to happen. Maybe not trying to lay out all the worst case scenarios and try to scare you and something silly like that. Maybe it's just a matter of saying, are your eyes open? When when you signed up for the Christianity gig, I'm, I'm using that word, I'm, I'm saying facetiously, you know, when, when you kind of joined the church, when you thought, hey, this might be fun. I want to be a Christian. And you had that initial glow of wanting to be in the faith were your eyes open or did you get the soft sell from somebody did somebody pull you aside and say it's all going to be you know dandy life in the christian faith is all good news you know if if so then maybe this is your day to hear what jesus said to the disciples if you're not willing to bear a cross meaning the shame persecution and potentially death of a world rejecting you then you're not worthy to be a disciple. You're not a disciple. Sometimes I think we play Christianity almost like a game, kind of like how the, the used car salesman do it. What do I have to do to get you in that car today? I've got you in the room for 20 minutes. Before you walk out this door, what do I have to do to get you in the faith today? What do I have to tell you to sell you on Christianity? There are whole churches whose programs are designed around that very goal. I get you in the room for 20 minutes, I don't want anyone leaving without confessing Christ. So what do we have to do to sell the seeker. It, that's not how this works. <laughs> Jesus was not interested in selling 12 men on being his disciple. He was interested in knowing whether or not they had the heart to do it for the right reason, knowing all that it lay in, may, may lay in the future for them. And then based on their reaction, he would know one thing. He would know whether they were truly a disciple or not. Because once the Holy Spirit indwells you, once your heart is changed, once you know the truth, you can't leave. I mean, you can disobey, you can live a life that tries to leave, but God doesn't leave you, and he continues to convict, and you'll continue to be drawn back. And to some extent, based on your obedience, you'll show fruit. But you can't just leave. But those who come in and confess falsely, who don't really believe what they say, who've been sold on a picture of what Christianity is that's not true, and therefore they do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this kind of discussion from Jesus is going to drive them away, and so be it. Just like in the book of Revelation in chapter 3, when Jesus writes the letter to the church in Laodicea, he says, you are lukewarm. I would rather you be hot or cold. Meaning, I'd rather you be a true Christian or truly know that you're not a Christian. But where you are right now is, you're not a Christian, but you think you are. That's the worst place to be. You don't realize that you're not there. So you're not looking for anything. You're content, though you're going to hell. That's the problem with lukewarmness, and the church today, I think, is often hamstrung by lukewarmness in its body because we have a lot of people we brought in under false pretense. We've sold them a bag of goods on this soft-sell approach. They don't know they're not Christian because they don't really know what Christianity is about, and we have no test. We don't have persecution. We don't have a culture where we're driving people to be honest about what they really think by the nature of the testing. It's such an easy way of life for a Christian in this country. There's nothing to ever test out the truth, you know, when you here in the scripture about refining with fire that's taking metal ore and putting it under hot you know putting on a hot fire so that you burn away all the impurities and all you're left with is gold or silver that's what scripture talks about when it says refining we don't have anything going on in this culture generally to refine people and i think that's actually not a blessing but in the long run that's something that works against us but it allows us to have a church that is lukewarm john says in John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So if we aren't experiencing persecution, maybe that begs a question. Well, are we showing a witness? Do we believe what we say? I'm not saying we should go out and seek it. (laughs) I'm saying it should naturally occur in some form, in some way, to some degree. Because that's what the world will do to a believer. Let's move on in the text. But the lesson, if nothing else, we move on with is that unbelievers may join and remain in our churches. And that's fine. We're not trying to distinguish who walks in and who walks out. But if we don't make the environment in our church such that it tests people's confession, it brings them face-to-face with what it means to really be a Christian, then we're not helping them. We all feel better. It's a nice, polite, happy environment. But we haven't helped anybody. If we bring them the truth of the message that's in the word and draw out of them either a true confession or a recognition that they're not, in, they're not interested anymore, then at least we've figured out who's hot and who's cold, and we can continue to minister to both groups in an appropriate way rather than treating them all the same. Now Jesus, if I'm sounding serious, I think Jesus is so serious here that he's about to reveal himself in a special way to three men within this group to make the point about what's really at stake, what this whole Christianity disciple thing is all about. Look what happens in verse 27. He says, I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now he says that at the very end of what he's just been saying. Now we have a gap of time in verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. This, this scene is so powerful. Everyone has heard of this scene before. For the most part, it's well known. And unfortunately, it's not one I'm going to fully examine with you today, because of time. We're going to ta- start today. We'll conclude this in two weeks when we come back into Luke. But there's still quite a bit we can do today with it. Let's begin with some observations concerning the scene, as always. Jesus, we're told, has just left the earlier conversation. He ends with that comment that the group is going to see the kingdom of God. In fact, some, at least in this group, are going to see the kingdom of God before they die. And as you know, this statement has caused a lot of controversy in the church. It is actually a point of great disagreement among many theologians, particularly when it comes to the issue of how it applies to eschatology, which is the study of end times. Because for some Christian circles, they have used this incorrectly, they've used this comment incorrectly, out of context, and without a full appreciation for what Jesus is doing here. And they believe it means that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Christ was promising, the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, that that kingdom is what's being discussed here, and that some of the apostles, therefore, must have been alive long enough to see that actual kingdom arrive. Therefore, the thousand-year reign of Christ must have begun before the last disciple died, and they typically peg it to A.D. 70, to the day that the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem with it by the Romans. So it's called an amillennialist view, Amillenianism. And it basically means there is no literal two thousand year reign of, or uh, thousand year reign of Christ on earth. It is meant more figuratively, and it started with the church. And so the church on earth is God's kingdom on earth, and therefore we are seeing Christ here promising to the disciples that this kingdom that he came to declare and, and proclaim has begun. We're actually living in it now, and they take that thinking and they use other scripture, and they go to a final thought that says, that kingdom will finally end with Christ's second coming only when the entire world is Christian. So in other words, the point of of this kingdom is to bring the entire world to faith so that when Christ returns, the entire world is Christian. Judge it for yourself. If you want to know why it violates scripture, we can certainly do that later. If you study my Revelation class, we go through this in detail. But it it hinges on several key verses. This is one of them. But if you look at the context of the verse, what was just said, and then what follows immediately after it in the text, is it really that hard to understand what he meant? Does it necessitate such a grand interpolation of Scripture to try to get to that discussion? What Jesus meant is clear. He said a week later, he takes three people, three a subset, some in other words, And he takes them up to a mountain, a mountain we don't know specifically where that is. He begins to pray, and he reveals himself to them in his glory, revealing the kingdom in that sense. And I'll tell you in a minute more about why that fits the sense of a kingdom. But look at how it sandwiches in. Look at what he was just talking about. Look at where he goes next. And you see the sense of the statement perfectly in that context. You don't have to go anywhere outside of that moment to appreciate its meaning. But before we go through that, let's just look at some other observations to begin with. First, the three men. Why Peter, John, and James? Well, if you know the book of Acts, then you would already understand the significance of those three men. Peter, a leader in the church to the Gentiles. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. John, the longest living disciple and arguably sort of the the leader of the church in a spiritual sense all the way till his death. He wrote... The gospel that many, many people call the best of the four in terms of its scope and, its, and, and, and the themes. He certainly is responsible for writing several letters, as you know. And then he wrote the book of Revelation as given to him by Jesus. The point being that if you're going to pick a subset of the disciples to give this revelation to, who better? Who else? I mean, if the Apostle Paul had been there, you probably would have had him involved. But Christ gave him a personal revelation later. So you're taking the three men who arguably are the three leaders of the early church and you're giving them this insight early on indicating that it was God's plan all along that they would be leaders in the church. So it makes sense that it would be these three. And there you have your some, your a few of you. It's referring to these three men. We hear that they go with Jesus, he calls them aside, they go up to a the mountain. they begin to pray. And it's, it's typical for these guys, they fall asleep. You've heard this before, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's telling the The disciples, pray with me. You have to be praying. It's a serious time. I need you to pray. And of course, every time you turn around, they're asleep. Here they are again. These these have to be the most sleep-deprived men I've ever heard. They, they They can't stay awake once. They're constantly drifting off. I don't know what they're doing in the daytime, but they're just way too tired. When they do finally wake up, they wake up to this vision. They see Jesus. They see Elijah. They see Moses. And they're all talking together. And the fact that this event comes immediately after the earlier conversation, makes so clear that this now is the moment that Jesus was talking about when he says they would see the kingdom. They are seeing the kingdom before them. Look at verse 29. In verse 29, we hear this. While he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. Jesus' appearance is completely different here. He didn't just light up. This isn't like Jesus backlit. you know. This isn't Jesus in glowing robes. His appearance is different. They would not have known who he was except that supernaturally they were given that insight. Look at a similar description that John, the Apostle John, gives of Jesus when Jesus reveals himself to John in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.14, John says this. He says, His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he had seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. He didn't look anything like what he normally looks like. Okay, This is this is completely different appearance. Both there in Revelation and here as well in the Transfiguration. So in other words, this is not simply a matter of Christ appearing with these other two gentlemen in sort of a glorified way by virtue of being brighter, he's actually showing these men how he will appear when he comes back in his glory. His appearance has been changed to look like the king of glory who returns in his second coming rather than what he looked like in his first coming, which is insight for us as well, by the way. When we see Christ in his glory, we'll see him in this new way. I don't know if we'll ever see him in his Old way, so to speak, in the the way he looked at his first coming. I I can't find in Scripture if we'll ever do that or not. But we will see him in his glorified form. So in that alone, they're seeing the kingdom. Because, folks, there's nothing else to the kingdom. Do you know that? The kingdom is not the buildings. The kingdom is not the ground. The kingdom is not us, right? What is it that makes the kingdom the kingdom? It is nothing else about it except Jesus being there in his glorified form. That and that alone is the kingdom of God. And our participation in it is part of what we're looking forward to, but we don't make the kingdom. We simply participate with him in his kingdom. So when they see Jesus in this glorified way, they are literally seeing the kingdom in its entirety. And in that way, three of those apostles had the chance to experience the kingdom of God before death, if even just for a moment. And that was his promise to them. Now, the next observation to understand here is, what does it mean that, that Moses and Elijah were standing there with Jesus? That's probably the most tantalizing detail for me, and it's the one where we can gain a lot of insight. First, what does it say they were doing with Jesus? I love this, because if you think about this from, with me for just a moment, it's fascinating. What are they doing with Jesus? Well, it says they were talking with him about what must happen in Jerusalem, and he says specifically about his departure Not his departure to go to Jerusalem. Look at the language. It says they were talking to him about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So which departure are we talking about? His resurrection. The departure Christ makes from the earth when he's in Jerusalem. That departure. They're talking to him about his coming resurrection, which implies, of course, his coming death and resurrection. All right, now... Here's where it gets kind of funny for me. What are they telling him? They're offering counseling, <laughs> right? Giving him words of encouragement. They're, 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 they're saying, you know, stay with it, Jesus. Stick in there. Don't give up. What, what would the creation possibly have to say to the creator? That's the, that's the thing that I can't understand here. What would the conversation have been? What value did Jesus get out of talking to two men that he knew before the foundation of the earth? How could they help him? And I think maybe that's the assumption. At least that's the, one of the assumptions I made. I came into that reading and I'm thinking, okay, they're just encouraging him. They're helping him. And then I stopped myself and I said, no, that makes no sense. What could they tell him he didn't already know? How could sinful men in their prior lives being sinful give any insight to the one sinless man, to the perfectly obedient son of God, Now, I don't think it was a matter of them giving him advice or encouragement. I think maybe a better explanation is that these men were being used by God as prophets either to relay information to Jesus or merely to speak in his presence so that the apostles could learn something. And in that first example, let me tell you what I mean. Remember, we've said all along that Jesus, having been taking the form of man, he voluntarily limited himself. He was still God. But his death on the cross meant something because he was truly a man. One sacrifice perfectly substituting for another. Him for me. Him for you. And if he hadn't been a true man in all respects, then his sacrifice couldn't have stood in your place perfectly. That's why the blood of bulls and goats can't satisfy God for our sin, because a bull and a a human are different. It's not a one-for-one trade, if you will. But with Jesus being a man, he could substitute for any man or woman. But in the form of man, he had limited himself. Paul tells us that clearly. Hebrews tells us that. He had limited himself to the point where he didn't have the same abilities he had prior. It was a purposeful decision on his part. No one took them away from him. He voluntarily gave them up for a period of time. In that diminished state, if you will, he was dependent on the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us over and over, depends on the Holy Spirit to know where to go and when to go. To be encouraged, to be empowered, to have the ability to heal. We've been reading this all along as we've studied through Luke already. Here again, perhaps, the events that were going to occur in Jerusalem were not fully pre-known by Christ in this form, because in this form he didn't have that ability apart from what God gave him. And so God was using the prophets to communicate information to him. That's a stretch. So I'm not resting on that. I think the safest assumption is the whole scene was orchestrated simply for the benefit of of the disciples, so that they would hear this conversation and begin to understand what would happen in Jerusalem, so that they could begin to get an insight. That's simply the safest assumption. But this conversation is merely a piece of the puzzle. The main question is, why these two men? Why Moses? Why Elijah? What's being taught? Well, first, you need to understand these men were immensely important figures in the Jewish consciousness. Though I I doubt the complete significance of them in the moment was really hitting home to the disciples. Nevertheless, just in general, you say Moses, you say Elijah, that's like saying George Washington, Abraham Lincoln to a Jew in some sense big great figures from their past revered founders of their Jew, of the Jewish faith Jewish culture and so when they see these two men standing by Jesus maybe one question you should ask yourself is how do they know who they were remember there no there no photographs of Moses there's no paintings of Elijah how did two men who come along thousands of years later know when they see these guys oh that's Moses that's Elijah they look just like the pictures we have no pictures Again, supernatural insight that they were looking at a different appearing Jesus and two other men they had never seen before but knew who they were. God is telling them, here's who these people are. So in other words, their identity is important. For the disciples, it was important for God that they know who these men were. So we should take some time to understand, well, what's the significance of God bringing those two particular people into that moment? Well, first, and this will be the the last set of discussion we do before we break for for the time being. First, consider what we know of each of these men. Moses, he's the redeemer of God's people. That was the way he was thought of in the Jewish culture. He was the one through whom God redeemed his people from Egypt. He was the man who brought the nation through the trials of the desert. But he died, if you know the story, before their journey was complete. God did not allow Moses to go into the promised land. He died outside the promised land and very interestingly, Scripture tells us pointedly, no one ever found the body. Deuteronomy 34, 5 tells us this. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And, now listen to this, he buried him. And that he is capitalized. God himself buried Moses alone. God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But listen to this. No man knows his burial place to this day. And Jude actually gives us an interesting snippet of detail later when he talks about how Moses, uh, the devil, contended with one of the angels over the body of Moses. In other words, the, angel wa- uh, the uh, enemy wanted to, t- to find Moses' body and bring it out for some reason. My guess is because he knew if he could find the body of Moses and bring it out in some visible way, he knew the nation of Israel would probably turn it into an idol. And worship it. But God pointedly made clear that when Moses died, no one would ever know where the body was, ever. So Moses is a type of Christ. That doesn't take any great insight. People have said that before. But I want you to see specifically in this circumstance how that type is being used. He is a type first in his redemptive work. In the fact that he came and redeemed his people. Christ standing there next to Moses. Moses being the picture of what Christ is doing in his first coming. Redeeming his people from sin. And it's significant that when Jesus died, there was no body left because his body was taken up. Similarly, Moses, no body ever found. And in that, you see a confirmation of that picture. Then there's Elijah. Now, God predicted in Malachi that Elijah would be a major player in the end times. Right before Christ's second coming, it's told to us out of Malachi 4, verse 5, this... Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it tells us that he will turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers. In other words, he will be a source of revival for the people of God in the last days, right before Christ's second coming. That's what we already know about Elijah. That day has not come yet. Secondly, Elijah's life ends in a very interesting way as well. Just as Moses had his interesting little detail, Elijah has his. Elijah's life ends when God literally ushers him straight into heaven alive. You hear about that in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. As they were going along, and the they here is Elijah and Elisha, both prophets together. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. That probably wasn't very hard to do. Horses of fire coming your way, you'll probably move very easily. And then it says, Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. So here's the connection for Elijah, if you can't see it already. Jesus is standing there next to two men who God has purposefully selected to send a message to the disciples. And both of these men individually depict the twofold nature of Jesus and his ministry. You have, on the one hand, Moses depicting Christ's redemptive work on the, for the sake of God's people. To die ultimately, though his body will not be found. And then on the other hand, you see Elijah representing Christ's resurrection, his taking up into heaven, and his ascension into glory. Chariots of fire, horses of fire, indicating that Christ's second uh, ministry, second half, if you will, of his ministry is one associated with glory and power, not with death and humility or humiliation. And Luke. In his choice of words in verse 31 actually suggests that symbolism for us in a very clear way. He says, two men talking to him, they were Moses and Elijah, and then in verse 31, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word departure there in the Greek, you know what the word is? Exodus. And that's not the common word for departure. It's a very uncommon word. Rarely is that the word used in the Greek when I want to talk about leaving somewhere. It's notable. You read this in the Greek, and if you're Jew, you see Moses, you see Elijah, you see Jesus, and you hear about an exodus to come in Jerusalem, which communicates the larger significance of Jesus' coming departure. Not the departure of, I'm going to be gone for a while, see you later, but the departure of a new exodus for God's people. By his departure, he takes us out of bondage. By Christ's departure, he, being like Moses on a much greater scale, takes the universe of humanity out of bondage, and gives them opportunity for glory, just as Moses did on a small scale for the people of Israel out of Egypt. We'll pick up again here in two weeks, because there's even more to say about this moment and about its impact on the disciples. And in fact, one of the things we'll really concentrate on is Peter's, Peter's poorly chosen words, because there's an awful lot we want to look at, and an awful lot that goes into why he said what he said and why Luke comments that they were poorly chosen words. And the, yes, they were. We'll look at that in two weeks, but for now, as we end today, I encourage you to dwell on the scene that Luke has painted here. For the next week or two, as you may come back to this lesson in your mind, I hope you will, I want you to consider with me, even right now, that you and I one day will do the same thing that these three men had the opportunity to do so early. We're going to have this same opportunity. we were going to have a chance to stand in Jesus' presence, just like they did, but unlike them, we won't be seeing a glimpse of the kingdom only to have it snatched away by the cloud. We'll be there permanently. I want you to consider that. We're going to have plenty of time in that thousand year reign, perhaps to talk with Jesus just like these two men did. If we can get on his calendar. You know, if 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 you can imagine that being literally the truth, not some figment of somebody's imagination. Literally. And you know what? You and I, we could die tomorrow when it starts. You know, it's just that close. It's as close as your last heartbeat. We could be in his presence doing what these two men did. And over those thousand years, we're going to have lots and lots of opportunity to stand and talk with men like Moses, men like Elijah. We'll see this very same scene. I hope you can bring that to mind. I hope that can actually sink in enough that during the week, it gets you excited. Because honestly, when you look at the scriptures, Paul talks about looking forward with joy and excitement to that very day. He says, let that motivate you to serve him better all the more now. I just I don't sense that sometimes, even in myself, much less from others, that we really are thinking like, you know, next week I'm going on a Colorado ski vacation, or the week after that I'm supposed to go do this, but you know what, if God comes back before then, I get to go see him that day. And We don't think like that. My 401k, not doing so well this year, but you know what, if Jesus comes back tomorrow, I don't care. Right? What difference does it make? And we'll have a chance when we actually reach that moment to understand so many things we don't understand now and ever will, to appreciate all the intricate detail of God's plan that actually brought us to the point of faith and into the family of God and then to the day of our glorification. We'll understand how he had that all worked out before we were born. Oh, it's just going to be amazing. I hope that actually resonates with you, because if it doesn't, then you don't see the joy of what you have even now. And if it does, you know what? The persecutions, let them come. I'm not being flippant. I mean, who cares? If it brings me closer to Jesus one day sooner, so be it. Who cares? To love him all the more and to show him the same love that he showed us to others in his name, that's all we're here for, and that's why he gives us another day. Let's use it that way. Let's go to prayer as we thank him for this time. Father, I do hope that excitement and joy is on our hearts. We opened the book today, Father, and the lesson began with such a strong and even perhaps depressing view of our faith. I mean, if it's even possible, Father, we could be depressed by it. It, it seemed to, to be the case that as we read your word today, it was it was reminding us of all that might come our way in persecutions and trials and testing because of our faith. And Father, we'll be the first to admit that we don't look forward to those things. We don't seek after them. Though even your word says we should pray to be tested. It, it is often the case, Father, that we do not do so. But Father, you were good to us today as always through your word to let us see the good side even as you brought us the truth of the reality of what it means to follow you. You left us, Father, with a vision of yourself as you did for the disciples. So that though they may see the road ahead as being filled with potholes, with persecution, with the potential for even death, death on a cross for many of them, that that would not be what was on their mind, Father. Though it was inevitable, though it may happen, it was not the thing that drove them, Father. You gave them this vision of yourself, of your son, of Moses and Elijah, so that they might understand, Father, that it's worth it. That what is coming, Father, cannot be compared to the trials that we see today. cannot be compared in glory. Father, thank you that you've given us that vision through your word, so that we may rest in that. Knowing, Father, that no matter what happens for the rest of this day or this week, or our lives in general, Nothing matters, Father, for an eternity except our presence with you, and you have promised us that based on our faith, and we look forward to it with such anticipation. Father, as the words of John in the last part of your book of Revelation say, Father, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly, because we do desire that moment now. Though we may have plans for next week or our future, and we may for a moment feel like, Letting go of that for the sake of entering your kingdom early would be a disappointment. Let that not be the thought on our minds, Father. Help us to see how trivial the things are we plan for this life and how glorified we can be with you, how wonderful it will be so that we are actually motivated by that. And in all you've done, Father, in this small church, in this humble gathering, we do give you thanks. We seek to serve you, Father, with a whole heart, with whatever opportunities you give us, to whomever you bring us. Let our love for you, our desire to preach the word in truth and in power and our willingness, Father, to be an obedient servant following after you. Let those things shine through, Father, so that others might feel the joy of serving and worshiping with us. Lord, in all these things we give you praise and thanks. And we, we do hope, Lord, it's your will that we would be back next week. We pray you'd make that opportunity available to us and even to many more. And we give you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.